From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On this Memorial Day, we reshare stories of service and sacrifice, including the man behind the honor bell, which tolls at military burials. As we were pouring the molten bronze into the mold, we dropped in a Purple Heart medal from a World War II veteran. We dropped in a set of dog tags from a Vietnam veteran. In all, we dropped in 12 military-related metal pieces that families donated to us. Plus, the role of Colorado women fighting World War II. Rosie the Riveter's only part of the picture. I promised myself I would not show fear because if I had been in their place, I wouldn't have wanted a nurse working on me with a shaky hand. And two soldiers, one American, one Japanese, who had more in common than they could imagine. Members of the Colorado National Guard are in the Baltics right now, training to work with NATO allies. It's a tense time, with the Russian border not far off and war raging in Ukraine. So along with practicing coordination and logistics, part of the mission is just reassurance. You think you're worried. What if you were Estonian? What message would it send to our partners if we said, oh, you know, things in the world are tough right now, we're not coming? I'm CPR's Caitlin Kim, and I've traveled to Estonia to see the Guard's role firsthand. You can find all my reporting at CPR.org. This is a Memorial Day special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When veterans die, they are entitled to a flag presentation and other military honors. But one veteran here, Luis Oliveira, was shocked and angry to learn that at the funeral of a friend's father, a World War II veteran, no one recognized his service. So he brought this sound to burials at Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver. Oliveira founded the Honor Bell Foundation. We spoke about its mission in May 2017. Tell me more about what motivated you to build the Honor Bell. Sure. So about seven years ago, I attended a funeral of a World War II veteran, my best friend's father. And uh, they had requested military honors, in his case, from the Army. And we waited 30 minutes. We waited 45 minutes. Finally, after about an hour, the clergy came up and said, listen, we, we have to move on. We have to get this show on the road. And so this veteran, part of our greatest generation, was buried with no military honors whatsoever. And it just angered me. So I did some research and I found out that there are nearly a thousand veterans that are passing away every day in this country. Just here in Colorado, we have about 50 passing away each day. And uh, I was really kind of shocked about that. And so I thought there must be something I can do to make a difference. And so we started the Honor Bell. We're going to talk more about the bell itself in a moment, but have you heard anecdotally or officially that other service members who died also haven't gotten the military honors they deserve? Uh, Or is what you experience something of an outlier? There has been nationally a drastic uh, decrease in the availability for military honors. And uh, Department of Defense is required uh, by congressional mandate to perform these honors at veterans' funerals. But uh, at the same time, there's been a decrease in funding for this mission. In some places, it's that volunteers have stepped up to do this work. And uh, you might, instead of getting a live bugler, for instance, have a recording played of taps at a funeral. 
Uh, the Air Force said a few years ago it had to cut back on the extent of its funeral honors because of some mandatory budget cuts. Nevada, Minnesota had to reduce funding for National Guard funerals. I will say that at Fort Logan, where the honor bell tolls most often, a spokesman tells us that every request for military honors at a funeral uh, is fulfilled. Fort Logan is really just an incredible place. And they it is true. They provide honors to every single veteran that is interred there. I want to talk more about the bell itself. So particularly how it was made. It's a thousand pounds, mostly bronze, but you have metals and other artifacts from veterans melted into it. That includes apparently dog tags and a belt buckle from Robert Raymond Abbott Jr.'s Coast Guard uniform. He held the highest enlisted rank serving on active duty in the 1960s. His widow, Nancy Abbott, lives in Centennial. She donated these artifacts and said she had an emotional reaction when she first heard the bell toll. Yeah, it just brought chills to me, goosebumps on my arms, and just tears to my eyes because I was so proud of what the Honor Bell Foundation had done and then was really proud of my husband and knowing that he would have been filled with so much pride to know that it was forged for all the veterans who had served their country in any capacity. What are some of the other artifacts, perhaps from different eras, that ended up in this bell, ones that stand out to you? Sure. So as we were pouring the 2,000-degree molten bronze into the mold, we dropped in a Purple Heart medal from a World War II veteran. We dropped in a Medal of Honor challenge coin from a Korean War veteran, Joe Sakato, here from Colorado. We dropped in, as you said, a, uh, a set of dog tags from uh, a Vietnam veteran in this case. In all, we dropped in 12 military-related medal pieces, artifacts, badges, buttons, uniform items that families donated to us. And we say that the bell is forged from honor. Uh, and as those melted down and became part of the bell, it's an interesting story. Uh, the bell manufacturer, we had it done at Verdon Company in Cincinnati, Ohio, the oldest bell manufacturer in the U.S. Huh. Actually been making bells since 1842. Seven generations of Verdons have been pouring bells, and our bell was poured by Tim Verdon, uh, the great-great-grandson of the founder of the company. And uh, as he finished uh, buffing the bell and getting it all shined up, he came to me and he said, I'm you know, really sorry, but we've never had this happen before. This is the first time we've made a bell with something other than 100% bronze. Oh. And as it cooled, you can see here, he was pointing to the bell, that there are these imperfections, these pock marks in the bell. And I said, well, what caused those? He said, those are these non-bronze material that, that when it cooled, came out to the top of the bell. He said, we can cover those up. You know, we have some putty and you'll never know. I said, don't you dare. That's the whole purpose of the bell. That's its character. That's right. Does it affect the sound of the bell? Not whatsoever. Hmm. Was there any concern about uh, melting like metals into the bell, that that was some kind of dishonor to the metals themselves? Like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if there's even... Sure, no. Uh, whole... In fact, the opposite of that. Okay. Uh, as you heard from Nancy, just a real incredible honor for these families to donate these artifacts and for them to be included. So every time the bell is tolled, some 400 times now, uh, a piece of Colorado's history is sounded throughout... Uh, Fort Logan. What do you sound the bell with? So the bell is a stationary bell. It's not a swinging bell that you mm. might think of. And so there's a clapper. It's actually a 65-pound ball underneath it on a arm. And we pull a lanyard and it strikes the bell and makes the beautiful sound that you hear.
Uh, and it lasted, I think it's like 20 some odd seconds if you strike it just once. I mean, it really has some resonance. Yes, it does. Now, we strike the bell. We have a, we call this rendering bell honors. And we do this again at the, um, at the request of a family for a veteran who has passed. And we toll the bell seven times with seven seconds between each toll. You toll a bell for sorrow. You ring a bell for joy. We can think of wedding bells. They're very high-tuned bells. This bell is tuned to the musical note of A, uh, one of the lowest notes a bell can make. Uh, Musical note of A is the sound of mourning. And so it's a very almost a haunting sound when you hear it. It's the deliberate ringing of a bell in a slow manner uh, to evoke that resonance that you're talking about. And is there symbolism behind seven? Yes. So seven is the number of completion. Uh, It goes back to Genesis. It goes back to many reasons. But seven in our case uh, signifies the veteran's life coming to a completion. Hmm. Is this a bell you want told at your own uh, funeral? Well, I hope so. Uh, I will be uh, buried at Fort Logan. And I hope that the sound of the bell is the last thing that's heard at my funeral. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And indeed, the honor bell did toll for Luis Oliveira. He passed away in 2018, a year after we spoke, and was laid to rest at Fort Logan. He was a U.S. Army Ranger and received two Purple Hearts for a combat mission in Panama. Oliveira created the Honor Bell Foundation, Its work continues to ensure veterans have a proper final tribute. The attack on Pearl Harbor brought World War II to American soil, and in short order, thousands of Colorado women joined the war effort, enlisting in the military, working in defense plants, and volunteering in all kinds of ways. Army Nurse Corps Lieutenant Leela Allen Morrison was among them, a note that her experiences are graphic. She took care of hemorrhaging soldiers in a hospital tent near the front line in Germany, mixing powdered plasma with sterile water. I promised myself I would not show fear because if I had been in their place, I wouldn't have wanted a nurse working on me, giving me IVs and whatnot with a shaky hand. That's a 2014 recording of Morrison made at a senior residence in Windsor, Colorado. She also helped as the Allies liberated the Buchenwald concentration camp. A survivor told her how he evaded death by hiding in a pile of corpses. As he showed her around the camp, she struggled to understand what had happened. This is just all to myself, and I was thinking, that's absolutely a factory of murder. That's the only way I knew to describe it. And I just couldn't understand how one human, I don't care what he looks like, who he is or where he's from or what, how could you do that to your worst enemy? Well, a Denver historian weaves Morrison's experiences with scores of others in the book Colorado Women in World War II. I spoke with Gail Beaton on Pearl Harbor Day 2020. You write that four months before Pearl Harbor, a Denver journalist named Mildred McClellan Melville predicted the war was coming to America. She said it would not just be a man's war at the front. It will be a civilian war reaching into every kitchen and nursery. It will be a war not only of bombs, but also of butter. Talk about prescient lines, huh? Exactly. Yes. Well, you know, you would say that women did everything 
in, in a short answer, but I like to think of it as the women doing five different layers. They enlisted in the military. They worked in the defense plants. They, you know, filed thousands and thousands of papers as office personnel. Of course, the physical sustenance of ranchers and farmers and victory gardens, and then all the morale uh, activities that they did on the home front. Very key in winning the war. And so that term war of butter, I I think that it captures the fact that even if you weren't directly volunteering for, for instance, the Defense Department, uh, people saw themselves and women especially as having a role, if that was at home on a ranch, as you say. Definitely. Everyone felt like they had a part in winning this war. And they often said, you know, we just did it. It was something we were required, not required to do, but the nation needed us. Were you surprised in researching this book by some of the roles that women played in World War II? Uh, were, were there learning experiences for you as well as a historian? Oh, there were tons of learning experiences. I mean, I had no idea. First off, the the amount of jobs and the variety of jobs that have to be done, you know, people stuffing oiled, soaked rags down gun turrets to make sure that they stay um, working, or women who are air traffic controllers, uh, watching the planes come in at Stapleton and listening to four different radios at the time, Um, Army and Navy nurses that were air evacuation. This is the first time we have air evacuation in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, So very, I was stunned. I was stunned. It was amazing. Yeah, why don't you think this history is better known? I think we're seeing more of an emphasis on finding the unknown or the hidden uh, people in the past, whether it's women or men of color or just women in general. Uh, I think probably the 100th anniversary of the suffrage 19th Amendment has helped bring some of these things to the forefront, as well as the fact that we're losing these veterans um, left and right. You know, they're in their mid to late 90s at this point, men and women. Yeah, I think that's really painful for me, too, as a journalist, to know that we have these Coloradans with direct experiences in World War II. And it feels as if there's a rush to speak with them and to document these stories. And Gail, you made reference to the fact that uh, women were essential to the war effort, including women of color, who thus faced not just sexism, but racism. And I think of the story of Alita Crane of Denver, Uh, an African-American in the Women's Army Corps. She attended officer candidate school in Des Moines, and even taking a shower was a challenge. Tell us about that. Yes, Alita and two other um, African-American officer candidates had to live in a private home off the base of Fort Des Moines. And every morning they'd get up, they'd shrug into their big overcoats, Uh, military issued, of course, walk across town to the barracks where they would shower before the white officer candidates arose. Um, Olita would say that this was one of the benefits of being a black woman in the WAC because she didn't have to uh, live in a barrack all crammed in with 300 other women. She didn't have to wait in line. Um, So this was kind of a benefit, but obviously one of the very few benefits of being a black woman in a segregated uh, army corps. And it was that, it was segregation that meant separate housing for her. Yes. 
Yes. And that was really just the tip of the iceberg when it came to racism that Crane faced during both her military and non-military work during the war. What else did she have to deal with? Well, before she enlisted in the WAC, she was an uh, employee at the Denver Ordnance Plant, and she was originally hired in one of the three positions that women did there, black women did, and that would be restrooms, cafeteria, or the lead shop, which, of course, is dangerous. It wasn't until later that the plant opened it up to black women to be able to work on the production line and as inspectors. So she was discriminated there also. They also, at the Denver Ordnance Plant, didn't have their own... Um, restroom in their particular building. So they had to go across the plant in order to use the facilities. And then when she was in the military, they had uh, segregated pools. Uh, well, not segregated, but they had the pools where the white women swam on Mondays. And then when Olita brought her unit in to use the pool, they often told them, oh, no, the time has been changed. You're not swimming this week or something like that. Hmm. If they did end up swimming, then um, the authorities made sure that the pool was cleaned or decontaminated, as they said, after the black women swam. You made reference to the lead shop, and I'm not certain what that is. Is that where they would make bullets or? Yes, um, bullet contained lead and so the women had to work with the lead and lead is toxic so uh, the women's blood levels were tested every three weeks if the level was too high they were removed from the lead shop and reassigned restroom or cafeteria duty which of course is much lower pay it's not a production wage yeah. um, th then if their lead levels were fine they were put back under the lead shop so originally at the plant there was only black women in the restrooms and the cafeterias and the lead shop um, until there was a threat of a lawsuit against Remington Arms, who ran the plant. Why did Olita Crane want to join the military? I mean, especially when you hear the circumstances that she faced. Oh, she saw an advertisement uh, that said, join the Army Band and help win the war. So she thought, this is great. I'm a saxophone and cornet player. Huh. What could be better than joining the Army and getting to play my musical instrument? Well, of course, once she joined, she found out that the WAC band was not for uh, African-American soldiers. It was simply for uh, Anglo women. Later, they did establish a fifth um, band, and that was uh, comprised of African-Americans. But by then, Alita had moved on her way with officer candidate school. You made reference to WAC, so Women's Army Corps, and anyone associated with the military knows that there are just a ton of acronyms. And that was true as well for women's service. So many acronyms applying to various uh, organizations within the military that women served in. What were some of the others? Well, you had the WAVES. That would be the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. That's the um, Navy, obviously. Then the Coast Guard was SPAR which stands for Semper Paratus, Always Ready. That's the motto of the Coast Guard. You also had, um, of course, the ANC, the Army Nurse Corps, and the NNC, the Navy Nurse Corps. Oh. But you also had um, the Marines were the last to open up the doors to women. And the Commandant said they will simply be Marines. They will not have any cute little nickname. Some people wanted to call them Glam Marines or Submarines. Um, but... The men, the male Marines, did come up with an acronym for these women reservists, and they called them BAMs, B-A-M's, which stood for Broad-Ass Marines. Huh. 
Some of it's awfully mean-spirited. Submarines. I mean, I get that it's a reference, of course, to the to the vessels, but it also is a sense of being less than. Yes. Uh-huh. There were women who served as pilots during the war, World War II, known as uh, WASPs, Women Air Force Service Pilots. Uh, why don't we hear what you wrote about WASP Peggy Moynihan of Montrose, Colorado. She had just performed her pre-flight safety checks on a recently repaired airplane. Satisfied that she and the BT-13 Volte trainer were ready to test its repairs, she taxied down the runway. On her climb over Bainbridge, Georgia, the plane flipped into a spin. Soon she was going down faster than she had gone up. Summoning the good Lord upstairs, she popped the stick. Nothing. She popped it a second time. Again, nothing. Still careening toward the earth, she popped it a third time. Finally, she pulled out of the spin. Finding a safe place, Moynihan held the plane steady as she landed. Unbuckling her harness, she jumped out and began inspecting the basic trainer. Realizing that the airfoils were not receiving the correct airflow, she ran her hand along the plane. Bubblegum. A huge wad was stuck on the wing. (sighs) Removing her gloves, she pried it off. Refusing to dwell on how and why the gum had come to be on the aircraft, Moynihan lifted off and completed the test flight. Without its added decoration, the Volte flew fine. Bubblegum. I mean, in the context that we've been speaking, it makes me think if someone did that on purpose. But do you you have a sense if that's true? Yes, I do. Uh, There were instances of mechanics sabotaging the planes. Uh, Fortunately, it wasn't many instances, but there was one particular woman who died, and Jacqueline Cochran, the director of the program, it was later reported that she found that there was sugar in the gasoline tank, um, which, of course, would, you know, not allow the plane to fly properly. Because it was women at the helm? Yes. Gosh. Um, You know, the the women pilots are really going into a very... um, manly male area, uh, much more so than, you know, being a clerk or driving the the motor vehicles around base or something like that. Um, That, I think, was a threat to to some people. So, uh, Becky Moynihan of Montrose was actually a test pilot. Yes. And is that a role that you knew going into this project that women had played? I knew that they had flown. I wasn't sure of all their different roles. Uh, The WASP, who went through the same training as male pilots, flew every type of military aircraft during World War II. So they were test pilots, but they also ferried airplanes. They transported officials from one end of the country to another. And one of the more interesting things they did, uh, and dangerous, was being uh, towing targets for gunnery practice. So they would drag a pull, a large canvas banner, like you would see, you know, flying over Mile High Stadium, you know, will you marry me sort of thing. Mm. But this one, um, as they flew over, the men practicing their gunnery skills would be shooting at this airplane. And when it came down, they would inspect the canvas and the ammunition had um, was marked with paint, like blue and yellow and pink and green. And this way they could tell where the... Um, shots had been fired. And of course, sometimes they found that the plane itself had been hit. So I I always find it amazing that you'd be up there in this airplane and, you know, you'd hear something here hit your airplane. Um, Must have been amazing. Yeah. 
I can tell in writing this, you've, you've tried to place yourselves in their shoes and in their controls. Uh, Gail, thanks so much for being with us. We're really grateful for your time. Thank you. Historian Gail Beaton is the author of Colorado Women in World War II. We spoke on Pearl Harbor Day 2020. And this is a Memorial Day special from Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. Welcome back to this Memorial Day edition of Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. World War II veteran Henry Sakaguchi of Thornton fought with one of the most decorated units in American history, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. I met Sakaguchi in 2017. A warning, his story contains some graphic descriptions of war. When I met Sakaguchi, he was wearing a hat that said, Go for Broke. That was the combat team's motto. What does that mean to you, go for broke? It means to go all out. Sakaguchi's parents immigrated from Japan. He grew up on a farm near Brighton, north of Denver. And things changed for many Japanese Americans after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 by Japan. Shortly after, President Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The following February, Roosevelt ordered the relocation of people of Japanese ancestry. They were rumored to be spies, plotting to sabotage the U.S. war effort. So with an executive order, about 120,000 people were forced into internment camps, many of them American citizens. Sakaguchi says his family was lucky to have been living in Colorado. In our community, there wasn't too much prejudice like on the West Coast. Most of our neighbors were German descent. And uh, the elementary school where we went through, oh, I'd say about 15 or 20 of us Japanese-Americans. Colorado's then-governor, Ralph Carr, called the president's order unconstitutional, quoting, An American citizen of Japanese descent has the same rights as any other citizen. If you harm them... You must first harm me, a position that cost Carr his political career. Of course, there was an internment camp in Colorado, the Grenada War Relocation Center, also known as Camp Amache. It's not a place Henry Sakaguchi went. He says his family was able to stay on their farm. Then, in 1943, at the age of 22, Sakaguchi joined the U.S. Army. I felt patriotism and also... I wanted to prove my loyalty to America. He was assigned to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, a unit made up almost entirely of second-generation Japanese-Americans, except that most of the leadership was white. Sakaguchi says that led to some tension, but one commander had this advice. If somebody calls you a Jap or something, she says, don't back down, says, fight for your rights. After basic training in Mississippi, his unit went off to Europe, Italy specifically, in 1944. 
Sakaguchi was assigned to the field artillery as a radio mechanic. He would fight in both Italy and France, and he was grateful he never had to be in the infantry. Being in the artillery, I didn't know how lucky I was until we got in the actual battle, and I saw what the infantry was going through. One day, he spotted a trailer near his command post. It had a canvas covering. I got curious, and I lifted up the canvas, and there was a body of one of our infantrymen. And from the chest up, it was gone. Eventually, Sakaguchi's battalion advanced into Germany. I understand your battalion actually liberated a subcamp of Dachau, in May of 1945. When we got near uh, Dachau, we had stopped for lunch uh, near a large, long shed. And uh, just on the other side of the shed, we found about 150 bodies just stacked up like cordwood in their prison-striped uh, those uniforms that are... Yeah, and you tell they were just skin and bone, you know. In January 1946, the army discharged Sakaguchi. He got married soon after, went to technical school to study radio and TV repair. He did that work for most of his life. He had four children and, with one of them, returned to Europe in 2012. On that trip, Sakaguchi searched for a church in the French village of Bifontaine, where he'd had a harrowing experience in the war. There were steps on on each side of the doorway. As we were about halfway up the steps, a bullet had gone right over our heads and hit the side of the wall right next to us, probably about two, three inches right above our heads. So we ducked down behind the stone wall and <laughs> crawled up to, to get inside the church the, Church had two big double doors. When we were inside, and there were about maybe 150 people in there. Villagers. East citizens, yeah. Close call. A little bit too close. How often is the war on your mind these days? Every, every once in a while, I think about about the experience and and wonder how the buddies I knew and. I think about them, how they were doing. World War II veteran Henry Sakaguchi. He was born in Henderson, Colorado. He fought with one of the most decorated units in American history. He died January 2019, two years after we spoke. A remote storm-ravaged island in the Pacific became the site of a gory but little-known battle in 1943 involving more than 10,000 American and Japanese troops. Within the barrage of a battleship's guns, United States forces move in to drive the Japanese from rocky, fog-bound Attu, strategic island in the Aleutian chain. Troops waiting for the zero hour. In that grainy wartime newsreel, waves of American troops land on the island's shores. But for Denver author Marco Masek, the story of Atu comes down to two men. One, a Japanese soldier who'd studied in the United States, then reluctantly joined the Japanese army. And the American who killed him. Omasek's book is The Storm on Our Shores, 
and welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. The Japanese soldier is Nobuo Tatsuguchi, known to his friends in the U.S. as Tatsi or Paul. And his life was full of uh, contradictions. Tell us about him before World War II, before he ended up on Atu. He's a Hiroshima native who had converted to Christianity, a Seventh-day Adventist and a pacifist. So as a Christian in Japan, he's already kind of a minority of a minority. He comes to California to go to college and then med school, graduates from Loma Linda University, falls in love with America. His girlfriend comes over from Japan. Uh, He proposes to her at Yosemite, and they take off on one of the first Greyhound bus trips, go from Los Angeles to Niagara Falls. I mean, you can't get more American than that. He returns from his honeymoon, and there's a family crisis. He has to rush back to Japan, and Pearl Harbor happens. And so he's conscripted against his will to fight America, the nation he loves. Let's get to this other soldier, American Dick Laird, who killed Tatsuguchi on the last day of this terrible battle for Atu in May 1943. Laird grew up in Appalachia. He was poor, dropped out of school to work as a coal miner. I want to get to a scene in your book that's actually decades after the war, though. Laird drives up to a house in Southern California. Tell us what happened. Dick Laird had been wrestling with nightmares for four decades from his war service. And he finds this house in California, knocks on the door, and a woman answers. The woman's got five-year-old twins. And Laird gets nervous and just starts babbling about how he loves to raise orchids. He's retired. And the woman says, I don't have time for this. It's nice to meet you, but goodbye. And so Dick Laird turns around, goes to his car, and kind of over his shoulder, he says, oh, by the way, I'm the one who killed your father. And he drives off. This is how you open the book. And indeed, he had walked up to the home of Tatsy's daughter. She was very, very young when he was killed on Atu. She was three months old. Her mom was pregnant when Paul Tatsuguchi was shipped out. She never really even knew him. Her only real knowledge of her father was just as pictures of the wall in the house. And here this man had come out of nowhere and said that he was the person who had killed her father. And so Laura Tatsuguchi Davis was distraught. And it would take years for the story to unfurl from there. Tatsuguchi, as we said, trained as a surgeon in the United States, then is back in Japan, gets conscripted, as you say, against his will. He's a pacifist. How did he feel then about serving in the military, let alone against folks that he had come to love, Americans? He was torn. Uh, He was torn by duty to his country, torn by duty to his family, and especially torn by duty to his faith. The way that he justified it in his mind was that he was a surgeon. He could help through healing rather than waging war. To me, there are two other characters in this book, although they're inanimate. Uh, One is a diary that Tatsuguchi kept through the weeks of fighting on Atu, and a diary which Laird recovered from his body after the final battle. We'll talk more about that. Uh, But the other character really is the island of Atu, You call it miserable and far from civilization. It was part of the Alaska Territory back in the day, but it was so far west 
that mapmakers drew a curve in the international dateline around it so that Attu and the United States were on the same day. Not just, not the same hour, the same day. You were able to go to Attu. What were your impressions of this place? Well, first that we were so lucky to go there and to be there. Nobody's lived on Attu since 2010. Now, Attu's got some of the worst weather on earth. There are only eight days a year that don't have snow, rain, sleet, or especially fog. Huh. I mean, the soldiers who fought in Attu would talk about they couldn't even see the end of their gun because the, the fog was so deep. And because Attu is at the confluence of the cold Bering Sea and the warmer currents from the Pacific, it's that m- swirling mix of cold and warm that just, it, it creates this bizarre national phenomenon called Willowaz, which are these hurricane force winds that rocket down from the 3,000 foot mountains and hit sea level. And there's no warning, they're spontaneous. When we camped on Attu, we had to bring gear that was like Everest quality tents. I had my oh. mountain hardware Trango. I'm laying there and I thought, wow, somebody's landed a jet on the island. How is this happening? And then, whoosh, <laughs> the tent is just, it's leveled. And that's because just the force and the sound of the wind. Out of nowhere, these Willowas come. I mean, Attu is a really difficult place to be. It's a really difficult place to live. And, I and just, I can't th- imagine fighting a war there. Exactly the notion of fighting a battle in that environment. In a way, your enemy is nature and the other side. Y- you happened upon this whole story because you had another connection to Attu. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, my first book was on, of all things, competitive bird watching. And because Attu is so far out there, it's actually closer to mainland Asia than it is to the mainland or North America, birders would go every year during migration with hopes that this notorious bad weather would blow migrating birds off course from Asia to North America. But when I started researching the history of this island, Attu, the Japanese had invaded and conquered part of North America during World War II. You know, the first U.S. soil lost since the War of 1812, the only ground battle of World War II fought in North America. I didn't know all that stuff. I'm glad you said that, that you didn't know all that stuff. This is not well-known history, this battle. No, and part of that is because it's really, in a lot of ways, a shameful chapter in the history of both countries. Japan sent a garrison of 3,000 men to this outpost, this island that nobody had heard of, and then they abandoned them. The U.S. blockaded the island, and so the 3,000 Japanese troops were left to run out of food, run out of ammunition, and it was awful. Their government just left them. The U.S. took a large uh, number of soldiers, tens of thousands of men, who had been training in the Mojave Desert of California. They were preparing to fight Rommel in North Africa, Mm. and they diverted them to Alaska to fight. They were told that it would take three days to take this island back from the Japanese. They needed three weeks on some of the worst weather on earth. And the casualty rate of this battle was exceeded in the Pacific War only at Iwo Jima. What was the interest in Attu on the American side and on the Japanese side? Well, on the Japanese side, the invasion of Attu makes sense only if you look at a map. If you are in Tokyo, here is an island that could be a a midpoint, a waypoint for launching a forward attack on the west coast of the United States. The problem is when you actually get on the ground, uh, you can't take off and land planes because the fog is so constant and so dense. You can't even really build runways or roads because you walk on the muskeg and it's like walking on a sponge. 
or, or a little trampoline. You go up and down, there's mud that you sink down to your thighs. So the reality is that it's an awful place, not a good place to fight a war. Now, that's on the Japanese side. On the American side, the only reason was that the other guy was there. Mm-hmm. There was no strategic reason to fight a war on Attu, and yet thousands of men lost lives, lost limbs. We mentioned earlier Paul Tetsuguchi's diary, an amazing firsthand account of his life and work on Attu. Give me an example of one of his days. One of his days was wake up, perform surgery on soldiers who had become embedded with shrapnel, do amputations, and duck bombs. Uh, He did all this in caves in unlit places with diminishing supplies. He was getting the full force of one of the most powerful militaries on earth. Tell me about this suicide pact that Japanese soldiers made and how that plays into the Battle of Attu. Well, the code for Japanese soldiers held that you should never be taken as prisoner. Don't be taken alive. Death before dishonor. In fact, Japanese soldiers, when a few, a handful were captured by U.S. troops, and they willingly told them everything they knew. They had never been trained to say, here's what you do if you're captured, because you weren't supposed to be captured. You were supposed to shoot the enemy, and if the enemy was going to get you, then you kill yourself. I wonder what he thought of that as a physician, a surgeon. He was a devout Christian, and his favorite Bible verse that he brought with him in his family Bible to add to was the verse from Deuteronomy, therefore choose life. And so Paul Tatsuguchi had many patients who wanted to be given the tools to kill themselves because they didn't want to be captured by the U.S. And yet as a doctor, an American-trained doctor, he had taken the Hippocratic Oath, what do you do? Do you give them the tools to, to do that? Did he? It's unclear. It's unclear. It's unclear. Finally, there comes a day when Tatsuguchi and Dick Laird face each other on the battlefield. Describe what you know of that encounter. Well, in the end, a Japanese garrison of 3,000 men is down to as little as 500. And they gather to mount one final bonsai attack. And Dick Laird wakes up that morning and sees above him on a knoll, there is an American mortar that's been captured by a group of Japanese soldiers. And they are turning it back at the Americans and they're going to load a shell. Mm. And Dick Laird sees that this is terrible. And so he goes and he throws a grenade and he kills or wounds eight Japanese soldiers there. Some are still alive. He goes up again and makes sure that they're no longer alive. When he does that, he looks on the ground and he finds an address book that's full of names with people from California and he finds a diary. He doesn't know it at the time. It's written in Japanese, but he tucks it in his pocket. He hopes there's strategic information in there, and he passes it along to his superiors later to be translated in in the rear lines. Ultimately, this diary becomes legendary among American troops. This diary is uh, translated and transcribed and passed around and mimeographed and does the World War II version of going viral. Uh, U.S. troops had been told all throughout their boot camps, all throughout their training, that Japanese soldiers were these heartless, conscienceless killers. And yet here's a diary who shows that the enemy is a father like them. He's got two daughters he really misses. He loves his wife. It's really easy to kill an enemy 
it's really hard to kill a man. And that diary really changed the impression of many Americans about who they were really up against. It seems that Tatsuguchi knew from the way the fight for the island was going that the Japanese were going to lose. His last entry, written before that final battle, reflects this. Would you read this excerpt? May 29th, battle. Today at 2000, we assembled in front of our headquarters. The field hospital took part too. The last assault is to be carried out. All the patients in the hospital were made to commit suicide. Only 33 years of living and I am to die here. I have no regrets. Banzai to the emperor. I am grateful that I have kept the peace of my soul which Christ bestowed upon me. At 1800, took care of all the patients with grenades. Goodbye, Taeko, my beloved wife, who loved me to the last. Until we meet again, grant you Godspeed. Misako, who had just become three years old, will grow up unhindered. I feel sorry for you, Matsuko, born February of this year, and never will see your father. Well, goodbye, Machan, his brother. Goodbye, Sachan, Teshichan, Michan, nicknames for his sisters. The number participating in this attack is a little over a thousand to take enemy artillery positions. It seems that the enemy will make an all-out attack tomorrow. Now, when he says, I provided grenades to the remaining soldiers, does he mean as armament, or does he mean to kill themselves? It means whatever we think huh. it means. Uh, there, Gosh, I found 10 different translations of the diary. Uh, some diaries include the phrase that uh, he gave the patients grenades, and some do not. Uh, the U.S. used this diary afterward for big propaganda purposes. It's horrific, the notion of a Japanese doctor slaying his own patients. And yet, Everything that we know, everything that I know about Paul Tatsuguchi would be contrary to that. But what do you do when your commanders order you to do something? My own belief is that Tatsuguchi may have given grenades to patients because they requested them in the same way that someone on death's doorstep may ask for uh, a lethal injection. But it's a great mystery of what actually happened, and it's still argued about considerably today. So the fight for Attu ends. Uh, Dick Laird stays in the Pacific, fights in several other well-known battles. Ultimately, he receives the Silver Star for his actions on Attu, but he cannot shake the memory of what happened or of the diary. What was life like for him after the war? Difficult. He was traumatized by nightmares every night of what he had done. Uh, He was a good soldier. He did what his country asked him, but it left such a deep wound on his psyche. He really was never physically hurt in a big way, but mentally was crushed. Why don't we circle back to where we began? Dick Laird finds Paul Tatsuguchi's daughter, Laura, living in Southern California. So Dick Laird left... Laura's house that day, not really knowing what to do. He had wanted to talk to the daughter of the man he killed, and yet he didn't really. But he let it fester. Yeah, he drops this bomb, for lack of a better term. He says, I'm the one who killed your father. And uh, Laura didn't talk to Laird for years after that encounter. Uh, but it did prompt her to do a lot of research to learn more about her father, who again, who had died when she was just three months old. 
Laura had always known how her father had died, but she didn't really know how he had lived. Mm. And so she launched a big quest to research uh, his life. And she eventually got to the point where she felt that she knew enough about her father and she knew enough about what Dick Laird had done that she called to arrange a meeting. How'd that go? They talked and they were polite, but Laura said she could tell that Dick Laird was really troubled. And Laura went home and she thought about it. And she wrote one of the most eloquent letters that I can imagine. Laura's a intensive care nurse. And she told Dick Laird, forgive yourself. Give yourself peace. You did what you had to do. Relieve yourself of this burden. And Laura had strong faith as well, and she saw it as her Christian duty to grant atonement. And when Dick Laird received that letter, he said that was the first night in years he had slept without nightmares. Mark, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Mark Omasek of Denver has written The Storm on Our Shores, One Island, Two Soldiers, and The Forgotten Battle of World War II. We spoke in April 2019. Thanks for joining us on this Memorial Day. I'm Ryan Warner with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.